Documentary filmmaker, journalist and writer Yabba Beidou was born in Ghana and educated in Britain. Before embarking on her career, she worked as a trainee at the BBC. Her documentaries have explored the imagery and myths surrounding the sexuality of black women in Western art, literature, film and photography. In 2010, she co-produced with Amina Mama the documentary film The Witches of Gambega. It went on to win the best documentary at the Black International Film Festival. Among her many credits, she's written three novels for young adults published by Zephyr. These books blend together myth and magic in stories that champion female empowerment. Most recent of these is Lionheart Girl. Though published as stories for young adults, there is no doubt these books will be enjoyed by many adults too. I, for one, was captivated by the world of Lionheart Girl and excited to talk with Yabba about Sheba and the community of women that she portrays so vividly in this story. Lionheart Girl tells the story of Sheba, who is the youngest member of a family of women in the Ashanti region of Ghana. Now, this um, place, her home, is is in a village with no name. It's a hidden village, a village that's shielded by tradition and magic uh, from the outside world because it's a safe haven uh, for people who are fleeing from witchcraft accusations or in the past who were fleeing from slavers or traffickers in human flesh. Now, she was the youngest member of her family and um, it's a household of women and all of them have different powers. Sheba's story is the story of a daughter who somehow manages to resist uh, the power of her mother. Uh, Her mother is somebody who um, wants her daughter to live in her shadow and manipulate her daughter for her own ends. So Um, Sheba's story is the story of a daughter who manages to claim her own power and in doing so overcomes her mother. The powers that the women in this house possess, many of them border on intuitive power rather than magic, as in magical power. it's It's a fine line between intuition and magic. Well, um, the the head of the household is Nanasewa, who's like the queen mother of the village, uh, a woman of high status, of a a royal lineage. Um, And she's got the gift of wisdom. Uh, Then her younger sister, Grandma Baby, is very gifted with her sense of smell. She can smell trouble on the wind and she can also um, smell people's pores and intuit whether they're happy or distressed or what they're going through. And then the other uh, members of the house, there's Aunt Ruby, who um, has a gift of touch. But the way she uses her gift is that she can touch people's clothes to intuit um, how they're feeling and where they're at in that particular time. And then there's um, Aunt Clara, who has also has the gift of touch, but her gift is that she can touch people's hair and get a sense of um, their mood and their sensitivities. And she is very similar to Sheba, the narrator. Sheba has the gift of touch as well. And, um, and she is able, through 
when she's trained by her aunt, Aunt Clara, she's able to see scenes of people's lives, scenes that affect her and affect the person who she's, whose hair she's doing. Mm-hmm. So they have all these various gifts of intuition. But mm-hmm. um, I think Sheba also has other powers, which she, as the story progresses, you see what can what she can do. Mm. And also this story is driven by secrets too, family secrets. And, you know, Sheba doesn't really know where she comes from. She doesn't know her father. She doesn't know her family's story and doesn't really feel that she can ask directly about these things either. But I think we're going to hear a bit from the beginning of the story, which kind of sets up this sense of secrecy. Yes. I'll read right from the beginning of the story, chapter one. The first time I ran away from home, I was seven. Instead of turning right outside the family house and going to school as I was supposed to, I turned left in the direction of the river and forest, left to find my father. Ma had confessed a few days earlier that he was a creature of the forest, a creature she met in a woodland grove on a day she was harvesting wild honey. One kiss and that was it. The thought of me seeded in her mind and I took root in her womb. One kiss and you made me? Ma had nodded. What's his name? What's he like? I'd asked. Is my father an animal or a bird creature, a human being or a chick like me? Ma laughed. That's what she called me, you see, her little chick, half hidden in the feathers of her wing. Tell me. She'd laughed again, a golden peel that spun me in circles as she tickled my ribs. I want to know, I squealed. Come closer, Ma said. I backed away, reluctant to touch her, to feel that fizz in my fingers which frightened me. Tell me, Ma. I don't recall his name, she said, or what happened in the forest after he kissed me. What matters, my dear, is that you're here and you're mine. I'd like to meet him, Ma, just once, please. She'd smiled. Have you ever wondered if what you want is what he desires? Best not wake a sleeping snake, little chick. Best forget him. In truth, I couldn't. It was this and the fizz in my fingers whenever I touched Ma's hair that spurred me on a quest to find my father. So Ma is the antagonist in this story. And my feelings towards her fluctuated um, as I was reading. She does have a cruel streak. She's power hungry. And yet I'm sort of partly influenced by Sheba's view of her and from time to time, this kind of protectiveness towards her mother comes out. So you can't hate this woman completely. Tell me a little bit about your feelings about this character that you've written. Ah, well, Sikab means gold, and it's also a word for money in Ghana, uh, in Chui, uh, the Ashanti language. And um, I really, really enjoyed writing Sika because she's sort of every woman in a sense, in the sense that 
you know, there's a part of every woman I feel that's very powerful, that's often suppressed, uh, the bit that wants to shout and scream and behave like Violet Elizabeth in the Just William books. You know, I'm going to scream and scream until I make myself sick. It's sort of like a childlike part of every woman, uh, but it's also a very strong part. Um, I was really drawn to a woman who doesn't mind the fact that she doesn't behave, who uh, doesn't mind the fact that other people are terrified of her and her power. And um, she, you know, her preference is to eat men rather than to marry them. And so there's a bit of that sort of very um, woman as a vampire, woman as all-consuming, as diabolical part of her that I really enjoy. Sheba has that choice, doesn't she, whether to become like her mother or to exercise a different, not let go of her power, but exercise a different kind of control of that. Yes, yes. Sheba's choice is she chooses to use her power in what is often understood as a more constructive way uh, to nurture the people who she works with on their hair. Like she um, is able to use her gift of touch to sort of soothe troubled souls and to help them feel good about themselves. Mm -hmm. And then she also uses her power to champion her village and to keep it hidden from outsiders who would like to destroy it. And which it means that she has to stand up to her mother uh, Mm -hmm. who would like to destroy the village. The story's set in Ghana, but there are lots of references to other parts of West Africa, but also East Africa you know, sort of bring in things, different aspects of clothing and hairstyles. It's not just um, one homogenous thing. And I wondered, you know, in, in writing that, is that just because things do move so fluidly? Or was there something here about celebrating Pan-Africanism? I don't think it was consciously Pan-African, but I mean, Africa is a huge, vibrant continent And, you know, we move from um, across West Africa. There's so many things. I mean, there's a one of the heated debates in West Africa is whose jollof rice is nicest. Is it Nigerian, Gambian or Ghanaian or Senegalese? And and so there's so much mixing across the African continent. Mm. Um, Just while we're talking about travel across West Africa and the movement of people, one of the things that you talk about is, I mean, Zongo is a a word that's used for a village of outsiders, isn't it? I mean, I think there's there's not just one, it is more of a generic term, is that right? Yes. So I love that character of Maybe, who is Sheba's, well, one of her closest friends. And there's you know, we've almost got a kind of class issue coming in here where it's not considered, at least by Sheba's mother, for her to be friends with an outsider or somebody like this. I wonder if you can say a little bit more about that. There are class. I mean, it it is a fantasy, but it's also rooted in reality. But there are people who think that, you know, people of a different class should keep to their place. I mean, from the, the the mood of the household, it's quite clear that um, the grandmother and Aunt Clara and Aunt Ruby are very happy for Sheba to be friends with Maybe because they see him as a, a, a good influence and a protective 
influence over Sheba, especially since maybe and his mother are the ones who return Sheba home when she runs away. But Sika, I think, is quite controlling and quite possessive, even though she's a mother who travels and spends long periods of time away from her daughter. She wants to, I think, um, maintain possession of her daughter. And and therefore, when she sees that um, maybe is a very close friend of, of, of Sheba's, um, she'll use any excuse to try to drive a wedge between them. And mm-hmm. she uses the wedge of class, though, of course, Sheba has got more sense than that. It's a lovely friendship. And we've talked a little bit about the powers that the women have and the sort of accusations of witchcraft that some of them are fleeing from, uh, including Maybe's mother. And yet he has magical powers too. So there is, you have males in this story that have that power. Yes. Was there something behind that to do with, you know, the perceptions of women as witches and and that in actual fact it's often used in a pejorative way and that by somehow extending this into the male community that actually it's taking away some of that negative aspect of those powers? Well, did you know, I I didn't consciously do that. But now that you've mentioned it, I think you're right, because the spirit of the Sheba's great grandfather, Nana Jitasu, is is ever present in the story. And he's somebody who had magical powers and could shapeshift. And but with maybe I was interested in a partner for Sheba, not initially, but Mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, Sheba sees ghosts and spirits and maybe does as well in that he is um, very aware of his um, two brothers and sister who died before he did, and yet he sees them. And he is their way of actually experiencing what it's like a bit to be alive. Uh, And I just wanted people, I wanted characters who occupy a liminal space between the living and the dead. And in this story, they tend to be children. And the way I couched it is that children, their eyes haven't yet set. Mm. So they're they're able to see things that adults don't see. Mm. And I wanted that sort of sense of freshness to the way maybe and Sheba see the world. I want to talk a little bit about the symbols for the chapter headings. They're they're fantastic because it took me, I was probably about a third of the way through the book and then I realised Actually, these symbols at the chapter headings, they all mean something and they do reflect what's going on in the chapter. So tell us a little bit about how that came about. Well, actually, that's Fiona, to be honest. I mean, um, I think there was uh, my last novel, Wolflight, reference Adinkra symbols, which are sort of like uh, symbolic expressions in West Africa, but we use them a lot in Ghana. So you might be wearing um, a dress with a particular symbol and people around you know what it means and it know they know what you're referring to. And I think that it's referred to a bit in the text like geniami, which means through God everything is possible and, and so on. But it was really uh, Fiona as a publisher thought it might work to have the symbols to head each chapter. I want to talk a little bit about the Nana's story where she's talking about 
there's quite a sort of exposition and exploration of gold, if you like. So she's referring to trade that went on in Africa. Yes. And then obviously that becoming more and more of an evil thing as it's no longer the swapping of commodities, but human beings becoming commodities as well. And how this is tied into this story. I'd love to know a little bit more about your thoughts there. Well, um, I guess it's to do with, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and what happened to him and uh, the history of slavery and the role of West African leaders and chiefs in the slave trade. And, you know, conversations I've had with friends from northern Ghana over the years. Uh, I, I have a friend who mentioned once that um, where he comes from, their place names like, well, let us perch here a while, because clearly, you know, communities were aware of slave traders. And so would be somewhere for a short time and then move on. And, and so all this history is there. Uh, and I wanted somehow to put that in Lionheart Girl, but put it in the context of a village that has been aware for generations of what's been going on, but has kept itself hidden. And is only open to people when they're desperate and need refuge, whether they've been accused of witchcraft or historically, whether they were trying to run away from slave traders. And so because of the circumstances under which I was writing, um, all this history seeped into the story and I think enriches it. Yeah, definitely. And I think also, you know, there are other things that are not necessarily need to be understood to take pleasure in the story itself, but also things to do with referencing, you know, the the different religions that people have. So seekers going off to church in one part, um, I think maybe his family are Muslim, I think. And There's a scene in here or several scenes where they go to the river goddess. So these older religions that exist within the area as well. And there seems to be something here about acceptance of all of that, that it's not one thing or another, but these things can exist next to each other. That's what I feel very, very strongly and that it's not an either or. It's um, the argument is often couched as Christianity is the best and and that if you have anything to do with traditional African religions, you you know you're you're a, a pagan or an animist or you're somehow lesser. Uh, and I actually think that all these religions coexist really happily. And at some stage, some people might go and sort of try to seek help from the river goddess uh, because the river's there, and you know you might not have to pay anything. But, you know, on another occasion, you might go to church. And so I I think all these things exist side by side and doesn't necessarily lead to conflict unless people are being very evangelical about Mm -hmm. faith and Mm -hmm. say, you have to believe this and think this. But in West Africa, so many things, every all of them jostle side by side. So um, I'd like to ask you, because our listeners might not know, but obviously a very distinguished and prize winning documentary filmmaker as well. And I could see some connections between interests in the subjects that you're choosing to make films about and these stories here. Was that 
a, a deliberate thing or is it just, you know, part of your consciousness? So that's why it comes into the story here. I think it's part of my consciousness, um, but there's no doubt in my mind that my whole journey into making a film, a documentary film called The Witches of Gangbaga, which took place quite, you know, over a long period of time, impacted on my life tremendously. Once I met the women, I was I really, really wanted to make a film about them. And it took a very long time. Um, but eventually, with the help of other feminists in Ghana and in internationally, we managed to make the film. And um, I hope that helped them um, because at the time that I started making the film, there are about over about 3,000 women living as uh, be condemned of witchcraft in Ghana and forced to live separately from their families in exile under the custody of of chiefs who were supposed to, um, were able to withstand their power and clamp on their power. And it was, it was uh, quite an abuse of human rights. Mm. But it, it was, the odd thing was that these places of refuge were sanctuaries. And if they had returned to their homes, they'd have been lynched or killed as witches. Mm. So it was double-edged. Is this something that your filmmaking was uh, able to, help bring about change um well change is incremental and it's often tiny baby steps at a time and i i hope it did bring about change in that people down south are much more aware of what happens in northern ghana but also it was a um a forum it created a a space for people to talk openly about superstition and religion Mm. and when the film was launched in uh in accra several members of the audience got up and talked about their experience of being accused of witches in the sense that, you know, one woman got up and said, you know, whenever I got better marks than boys in class, they said I was a witch. Or a woman got up and said, my child, my child is disabled and my extended family now claim that I'm a witch. So the Mm -hmm. term can be used in all sorts of ways, but it's always derogatory Mm -hmm. in Ghana. And, um, the more we actually understand what's happening when people are accused of witchcraft or scapegoated for things that go wrong, the better we can understand how we can resolve the issues and mm-hmm. um, and make things better for everybody. And of course, in this story, uh, Maybe's mother, that double cruelty of infant mortality and then being blamed for that when it's obviously, you know, such a tragic experience for her. And then this is layered on the top and yes. you know, the partner you thought was your partner being the one leading that charge against you. I mean, it's deeply horrifying. Yes. Yeah. And of course, not so different from the kinds of things that have happened here. Uh, in the past with witchcraft accusations and the stuff that um, uh, Arthur Miller writes about in The Crucible. It seems to be the world over and it's the women that are the ones that are targeted. Exactly. And it's not just the past, in the present, when Mm -hmm. women dare sort of go against the grain of orthodoxy, they they are vilified in a way that men who do the same thing are not vilified. So it's, yeah. it's something to do with uh, women as a sex, I think. Our bodies bear the brunt of people's fears. 
Well, fear is another part of this story here. And uh, there's just one quotation that I want to kind of end with this idea is that Sheba is told that you have to go to the centre of every danger that lies ahead of you and only there will you find safety. This is a little bit about confronting that fear, but that's quite a complex idea in a way that you have to go to the centre of danger. That's where you will find safety. Again, I'd just like to hear from you your thoughts about that. Well, I think Sheba's journey is very much of a a girl who's, I think, quite timid deep down and unsure of herself um, because she doesn't, you know, her mother wants to keep hold of her. And her journey is into feeling more confident within herself and challenging her mother and facing her mother and doing what's best, not only for herself, but for her village. And I felt that if you're going to make the journey from fear to courage, you need to bear that in mind. And mm-hmm. so when her when she's actually called to champion her village, she does it. And mm-hmm. she does it, um, I think, very well. I really want people to read this book. Uh, yeah, but I think it's uh, it's fantastic storytelling. As I say, the characters, every one of them, this cast of characters is just so interesting. I also have to say that from my own uh, personal point of view, you made me want to go to Ghana. Oh, I, want to, I want to eat that food. I want to drink the hibiscus. So you've opened in that way also, you've opened up another world to me. So thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. <laughs> In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.